Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health and sick to fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a healthy and hydrated life. Today's guest is Rich Raz Razgatis, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Flow Water, whose mission is to decentralize and democratize fresh, healthy, clean, safe drinking water. And in our conversation, we talk about bottled water and how bottled water is the new cigarette. It hurts those who drink it and it hurts everyone else. If you've heard of secondhand smoke, you've got to be next to the smoker to get the effects of that. But we're getting the effects of millions and millions and millions of bottles being thrown away every single day in our food supply, in our water supply, and in our own endocrine systems. Rich and I talk about the issue itself, what are the health dangers, the environmental dangers, how he got involved in the problem in the first place, what, what his own awakening was, and what each of us can do as individuals and as advocates for a sane, healthy society. Three ultra quick announcements before we get there. First one, there is still room for the Sick to Fit retreat in New Orleans with me and Josh Lajani. Check it out at sicktofit.com slash NOLA, N-O-L-A. That's March 5th through 8th, 2020. It'll be a blast. Second thing, if 2020 is your year to get fit and healthy, to turn things around, and you'd like some help, I can help. So I'm looking for three new coaching clients in uh, January of 2020, and you can find out more about that at plantyourself.com slash laser. Third thing, I'm committing to playing big in 2020, and part of that mission includes growing the podcast, growing its reach, growing its influence, being more of a voice for health and sanity. You know, the world is on fire. The world needs this message. The world needs each of us to do what we can. And if you'd like to help me do what I can, I need to spend more time on the podcast, producing, promoting, marketing, growing it. And you can help by becoming a patron, by becoming a supporter of the show. If you go to plantyourself.com, there's a donate button on the top menu. Or if you go to patreon.com and search for Plant Yourself, you can also find the show, find me and become a sustaining member a part of the community helping us bring this message to more and more people. All right, so let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Rich Razgatis, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Great, Howard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. 
you are with with flow water like are you the you the like ceo founder chief visionary i uh officially my title is ceo and co-founder of flow water and has been since uh uh early early stages going back to 2013. let's just start with the basics what what is flow water and why should we care great uh well flow water kind of in its simplest form explained in kind of a bite-sized size piece is flow water is a refill station that takes tap water potable tap water anywhere in the world in any kind of water line hookup and it's basically a device that purifies remineralizes remove impure removes impurities from that water and dispenses what is the equivalent of something that's better than bottled water on tap with zero packaging, zero waste. Um, and so that's the product that we have today. So someone, when someone asks kind of tactically uh, or, or product-wise, what is flow water, that's the answer. The bigger answer, if I may, around what is flow water is, you know, flow water is really a movement around the decentralization and, and democratization of water. And so what that means is, we're trying to effectively undo all of the packaging that exists for distributing and delivering water throughout the world by getting consumers to go back to the tap again and fall in love with the tap. And the reason that packaged water exists is because people don't like or don't trust the taste of tap water. Uh, it's not because we don't have enough water faucets or water spigots. No one says, gosh, I got to drink bottled water because I can't find a water faucet. That's never the case. They drink it because they have some preconceived, which could be a perception or a real notion around why they shouldn't or can't or don't like to be drinking out of tap water. So our real vision is to radically change the way that people view and distribute and consume water and the mission of the company is to put an end to single-use plastics as well as single-use packaging while providing a powerful way to hydrating millions of Americans and ultimately hundreds of millions of people around the world. Wow, there, there are so many layers to that. I hope, I hope we, can, we can cover them all. Um, but let's, let's start with, um, you said you, you've been there for, since 2013, so this is seven years now. What led you and whoever your co-founders were to want to take this on because it it feels like a very strange thing to take on in an entrepreneurial way, almost like it's, it was entre it's entrepreneurship to some extent that's gotten us into this mess. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting that's an interesting uh, way of posing the question, and it's an interesting question in and of itself. Uh, I think I, I can speak from speaking from my own perspective. You know, from a personal. Um, like paradigm and philosophy around what has captivated me by this cause and this mission that we're on, really there's three driving kind of force functions for me. Number one is uh, on a personal level, I had a very transformative experience around wellness and uh, weight loss and fitness and clean eating and hydration about 10 years ago, I'm 46 now, so I was in my mid-30s, 35, 36, 37, when that happened. And that intersected with, and, and by the way, that kind of drove me to want to think about things that were 
meaningful towards human health and performance and behavior. That intersected with kind of point number two, which is uh, when I co-founded the company in, in, in 2013, I had two daughters that were uh, the age of 10 and 11, Royce and, and Zoe. So Royce is a, was 11 at the time, Zoe was around 10. And I was going to their soccer games and I, it hit me how much crap we are programming our kids into consuming at a very early age. It basically is big tobacco in the 60s, like programming teenagers and high school kids and college kids for what later became lifelong dependencies, brand affinity, dependencies, addictions. But it was like soda and candy bars for kids being programmed at a younger age through marketing, through parents bringing candy bars and soda pop to the soccer game and the soccer practice. And it really hit me powerfully, which is our kids are getting programmed into these lifelong, and I'd been on the other end of kind of correcting those mm -hmm. at the age of 35, 36, 37. So those were two major catalysts. And then kind of the third was big problem around the environment with these plastics that, uh, you know, turn into plastic. 50 years ago, there were no plastics in the ocean. Today, you and I, if you drink out of tap water that's unfiltered, non-purified, or bottled water, today, we average, uh, as, as, as Americans, uh, we drink on average two credit cards worth of plastic every month just through water. And that's in the form of microplastics, and that's a huge issue. And so that was kind of the third catalyst of there's a huge problem that we have that's started years ago and it's accelerating and now it's a clear mega trend. I mean, plastics and single use plastic water bottles are being clearly seen as the new environmental cigarette. So those were the three reasons, a little bit of protracted explanation around it, but there were, there were a lot of kind of catalyzing forces uh, for me personally that drove me into this. Mm. Well, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to protract them even more because I'm really curious about about all of them. But just it's just it's just like this weird irony that the solution to microplastics in our tap water is plastic water bottles that contribute to microplastics in our tap water. Well, it I mean, it, it is kind of ironic if you think about this, that the the what people thought, I mean, it, this is the whole chain and like how you just kind of articulated it and extrapolated it out. Many times people drink bottled water thinking that it's cleaner or purer or tastes better than tap water. In some cases that's true, but 50% of the time, 50, about half of all packaged bottled water is tap water in a plastic water bottle. In fact, there's an expression sometimes people say, which is that, uh, Bottled water companies don't sell bottled water, they sell plastic bottles that happen to contain water in it. And about half the time that's tap water. So like as a, the irony is that in seventies, eighties and nineties, as packaged water started to proliferate and now there's you know hundreds of different brands that it's now ended up in our oceans, lakes, rivers and landfills, 50 billion single use plastic water bottles get consumed in the US alone every year, 38 billion of those end up being unrecycled. And when plastic reaches the environment and when it reaches the ocean, it doesn't biodegrade, it photodegrades and it turns into microparticulates. And now we are literally drinking the plastic in our tap water that we had been using 
with in part bottled water because we thought it tasted better or was cleaner, what have you. In many cases, it's the same as tap water. Is there data on what that does to our health? There's not yet. I mean, there's that. So yes and no. If you were to ask uh, for you know outcome specific data on what does prolonged exposure uh, to microplastics do in terms of outcome and future state. Uh, I know of no data, and I've done a, a, a lot of research along it. There is, um, you know, secondary data, and then there's there's category leading and markers that I think we should be really concerned about. And so let me give you an example of that. In cigarettes, there are approximately 6,000 known chemicals that are involved in the final production and kind of assembly and distribution of a single cigarette. And we know now after a period of long protracted tobacco use, you know, particularly in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and the data that came out of it in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the deleterious and de de destructive, like life-ending, year-ending uh, effects of tobacco. Let me draw a parallel. So I use a lot of parallels with big bottled water and big tobacco. You know, there's a lot of changes as it relates to the company, excuse me, a lot of similarities as it relates to the company's social uh, behavior and pressure, et cetera. But in the production and in the petroleum that go in to make the plastics in bottled water, there are over 10,000 known chemicals that get created as part of that creation process. So almost twice the amount of chemicals in single-use plastic water bottles that are used to kind of form and create those bottles than what is in tobacco. Now, I'm not suggesting bottled water, you know, is at all parallel in terms of health outcomes in cigarettes. My only point, though, is that you can look at the chemicals, and some of those chemicals are endocrine-disrupting chemicals that have metabolic changes in, a, in, in an effect. And I think bottled water and I think the consumption of microplastics is going to be much more like uh, a negative effect along the lines of something like cigarettes. In, in like cigarettes, one won't kill you, 10,000 isn't good for you, 100,000 is pretty bad for you. You're gonna start to have the effects of it. And I think bottled water is exactly the same way, which is after drinking 10,000 or 100,000 bottles of water, or now the problem is you don't have to be drinking bottled water to be drinking bottled water. When you drink tap water, you and I, Howard, drink tap water, Chances are that we are drinking bottled water, just the microparticulate plastic of that bottled water and other yeah, plastic. We're drinking pla we're, instead of drinking water in plastic, we're drinking plastic in water. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's yeah. precisely. Wow. And I imagine it's going to be harder to prove. You know, like you know, tobacco is notoriously hard to prove because you never could do a randomized clinical trial to get people to smoke. But at least you had epidemiologically, you had a clear distinction between smokers and non-smokers. This is something that is so ubiquitous. It's this uncontrolled experiment in which all of us are consuming the same thing. So, you know, then we can say, well, you know, Autism is increasing. Well, it must be that we just didn't have the right diagnostic criteria before, but it was the same. We have no way of knowing how the numbers are going up and down from the endocrine disruptors in, in the pollutants in our, in our water and air. Right. And I think that's why it's one of, for us, um, it's one of the driving factors around providing clean, great tasting water that people love and, and trust. Um, at the same time, you know, I think getting people to, and, and I think there's enough 
evolution in the market today, which is much different than uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago, around clean eating, clean drinking, what's in the food store, like the level of consciousness and awareness of pollutants. And I think now consumers uh, disposition towards making a decision of, I do not want to drink that because it contains these particulates is a lot stronger today than it existed 10 years ago. We see this with food sources. I mean, if you even look in the dairy uh, section of a Whole Foods, uh, it's kind of incredible what's happened over a period of just three, five, 10, 15 years in terms of where ingredients are sourced and what consumers select as it relates to source. And I think that now just becomes more prolific as we look at other products that we're putting into our body, including uh, water. Right. Yeah. And I want, I want to talk about like the the issue of habit formation. Um, maybe come come back to that in a little bit, because I still want to follow up on your three uh, driving force functions. Um, I'm curious about your your health, health, you know, transformation. What 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 from what to what? Uh, well, I'll tell you. It, it, so it start it started with me like this goes back to part of the underpinnings of what happens in adolescence that someday hits you at 35 or 40 and it causes you to make a different career decision or uh, in kind of an aspirational, inspirational career decision. I, so here's like going all the way back. I grew up in uh, an environment where, you know, I would consume a lot of soda, eat a lot of donuts. I mean, I, I still, I love donuts to this day. I don't eat very many of them, um, but it doesn't mean I don't think about eating them a lot and I have, a soda one day a year on every every Thanksgiving, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. That's it. That, that is my <laughs> time a year. So like everything in moderation, but I grew up consuming this as a daily staple and it was fine for me. Like it was fine for me because I was young and same with a lot of other kids. You don't know any better. But I did that through uh, college and playing sports through college. I played football through college and all was fine. You know, I bulk up a little bit. That was good. Like, you know, you wanted to be a little bit, you know, beefier on the football field. Well, what, so. posi what position? As a tight end. Okay. So I, you know, so like putting on another 10 pounds was generally a good thing. And I was working out all the time. Then 23 happened and I wasn't playing ball anymore. I was taking doctors out to dinners. I was working in the pharmaceutical industry, both like in the commercialization side as well as corporate marketing later. Um, and I had all these bad habits that had continued for years. And those 20, you know, 23 turned into 28, which means like 220 pounds of, of muscle mass turned into like 220 pounds of not so much muscle mass. And then at one point it turned into like 270 pounds, 280 pounds of not a lot of muscle mass at all and a lot of obesity. And I got to the point where I remember watching uh, years ago, uh, there was some dating show, whatever the dating show was that was online, Bachelor, I think it was the original Bachelor series. And everyone loved this guy that was the fat guy. They all, everyone described him as the fat guy. And I remember looking at that guy and thinking, that guy's skinnier than I am. Like, I turned into the fat guy. And that was kind of the metamorphosis. That was part of my change of, uh, I always wanted to run a marathon. And, you know, by the time I'm 35, 32, and I'm like, you know, ranging between 250 and 270 pounds, I'm going in the wrong direction. Um, and so how, I how tall are you? Six two. So like for context, I'm 196 pounds today. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I'm six two, six three, like you know, right, right in the midpoint there. Um, so, you know, like 200, 220, like is great. Uh, 190 is great. 270, not so good, especially when I'm not working out feverishly. And so that was kind of the first metamorphosis, which is 
I learned, and I was still working out, by the way, but I just wasn't working out like I was. So one of the things that I learned was that you can't outwork a terrible diet. And one of the things that you can't do as part of a diet is if you're consuming 500, 700 calories of soda a day, you, you just can't outwork that. I mean, a robust workout of five to 800 calories, you're maybe breaking even on just your caloric intake from soda if you're drinking sugary carbonated beverages. And so that was a huge aha for me. And so kind of a long story short on that was cleaned up the diet, started work, you know, did, uh, now I do very vigorous intermittent fasting. I fast till two to 4 PM every day, uh, have a narrow fasting interval. I do keto now, but even like 10, 12, 15 years ago, started running, started crossfitting, uh, started doing a lot of hit works high intensity impact training. And then a lot of it was cutting out necessary calories. I mean, I was, I was consuming an inordinate amount of calories through like candy bars and soda and changing my mindset around that. And that's one of the passions around flow water is when we deploy a flow water unit, not to make this sound like a commercial or a plug for a flow water unit, but one of the things that I love about it is when someone has a flow water in their hotel, their school, their corporation, we'll see a 50% reduction in soda and coffee consumption. And that's because they're drinking more water. And if they're drinking more water, they're more apt to make healthier decisions in other areas of their life. And so for me, part of it was like, well, how do I level set a reformation of good, healthy patterns and then abide by that? Um, and it, it was like a long process for me to kind of figure that out. I'm embarrassed to say it. it took me a couple of years or a year to really dial that in. And it took me 12 years of bad eating, bad living uh, in an unhealthful healthful way to figure that out. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. And I mean, the, th the thing with that is, it's like, like I'm imagining, you know, you putting on maybe five, 10 pounds a year. There was never a moment that you could look in the mirror, you know, in the mirror or look on the scale and say anything much had happened. Right. Until right. until you had the mirror of the fat guy on the bat, the original bachelorette. Right. Who. Right. Because right, like all of a sudden there became there. There were this threshold was available to you. But for most of us, there is no threshold because we're looking around, whether you're going to your kid's soccer game and you're seeing all the kids eating the same thing and all the parents excusing it. Right. As if they're always going to be 11 and 12 and 23 and never 30 and, and continuing the same habits. Or you you see everybody drinking bottled water or drinking soda and it becomes the normal. It's really hard to kind of, you know, be the, the outlier in your in your world i think I, I i think that's a great observation which is you don't you know it's one of those things like as it relates to weight loss or fitness or any number of other things as well is that um incrementalism in the wrong direction is really 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 dangerous <laughs> because you notice it right right i'm a fan of incrementalism on the upswing but you need to have a catalyst to know to make the, and, and like the way I'm wired is, I kind of needed to be like five or 10 increments at a time rather than like one or two at a time. So when I got on the fitness bandwagon, it was, you know, cessation of alcohol, cessation of soda, complete, you know, eradication of sugar and a lot of working out. So I kind of tried to hit it all at once. But I think to your point, this is the danger of, you know, societies, politics, uh, your spiritual soulfulness, your work environment, your fitness, whatever it is, incrementalism on the way down is a very, very dangerous thing if left unchecked. And uh, I think it's one of the things that I always uh, have tended to appreciate people 
that have a curiosity of, of well, why are we doing this this way? Or why do I do this? Or why do I behave in this way? Or why is this happening from a societal perspective? Because that curiosity is what starts to pick at a better way or uh, an improvement. And sometimes it is an incremental improvement. Sometimes it's a radical one. Right. See, but one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is, you know, my, my shtick is helping people base it with lifestyle. And mostly it's diet and exercise. And, you know, this podcast, I advocate a plant based diet as opposed to keto. But I think we, we, you and I can probably agree on 90 percent of the details of what people should and shouldn't be eating. And the, the frustration is that I am working with individuals and almost like turning them into battering rams against the culture. Like, OK, you want to eat healthy. You've got to now stop doing the things that you've been doing with your coworkers, with your family. You can't, you know, pop into the Burger King, into the fast food drive through, like all these individual things that I have to people have to stop doing while society takes a really long time to catch up. And what I love about what you're doing is you're putting a machine somewhere, essentially, that changes people's behaviors in a way that feels effortless. And like the way I'm thinking about it is um, so I spent a, a certain amount of time like traveling and flying and I would always, you know, I'm a good boy. So I take my little water bottle, whether it's, you know, the plastic one or a, or a metal one. And at the airport, they always have these water fountains with like the worst flow, like it's barely over the lip. Like you'd, you'd have to like, you know, French kiss the, the, the piece of metal <laughs> to get something. And there I'm like, how, am I, how the hell am I going to fill my bottle with this thing? And then right. all of a sudden they started putting in these water, these fillers and the yeah. bottle just sits there and it's kind of cool. And it's got a number, how many gallons saved. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden that became easier than than trying to suck off the water fountain or, or fill my little bottle. Right. And like so, I, you know, we have, I just joined a gym that has a flow water and there's the flow water unit. And then there's the, the kitty water fountain and the grown up water fountain. And. There's no way in the world that I wouldn't just stick a bottle in, in the flow water because now I can take the bottle to my machine or to my treadmill. And you've you've essentially changed my behavior for me without me having to do a damn thing. Well, I think th uh, thanks for sharing that story, by the way, going into this, I did not know uh, that you had a flow water in your gym. So that's great that you've actually had a use case and an experience with it. I think this is one of the things about behavior change, and you probably will have some really great insights as it relates to your coaching and the practice and the philosophy around aligning people towards a plant-based diet, of which I'm a huge fan. I need a little bit of animal. I, for me, I need a little bit of animal protein, but a huge fan of plant-based diet. Uh, Paul, Michael Pollack's book, great, um, uh, is uh, kind of a many years ago a cursor for me in terms of uh, looking at um, how I change behavior. But I think if you look at flow water and the story that you just shared and kind of that narrative, that use case is if we want to change consumer behavior, we ideally need to make it easier for them and preferential, right? So if I try to get somebody to change a behavior by saying, hey, stop using single-use plastics and you gotta go use something that you're gonna hate using it and it's gonna taste disgusting and it's gonna be a gross experience and it's really slow and you gotta bend over or what have you. 
you know, to like fill up your bottle and like kind of get it to the lip of it. It's not going to be a very successful enduring uh, behavior change. This is why recycling rates in the US, why are recycling rates virtually unchanged over the last 10, 15, 20 years? It's because the behavior and the, and, and the action of it and the perceived impact of it is not more powerful than unfortunately the simplicity and the convenience of just throwing it all away. And so a big part of what we're doing is so that flow water experience that you have in your gym, uh, ultimately we wanna create input wherever consumers work, rest and play. And that means in the home, in their hotel, in the school system, so that they have a super simple way of doing something that they prefer to do and to drink. And I think this is part of the trick of, uh, and it's part of the challenge because we're programmed to go out, you know, like maybe there's a happy hour and then you're going to the ballpark and then there's like the volleyball tournament and it's off site somewhere and everyone's going to Burger King or what have you. There are some things that we have to reprogram, but then once you program them with something better and you feel that it's better, it becomes a self-creating habit that has major impacts either individually or collectively as part of humanity. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about how how bottled water came to be. It was it was essentially seen as, OK, I, th I think I think this is true. You can you probably know more about the industry than I do that. OK, the, the consumers seem to be wanting to be a little bit healthier. They don't want all these sugary drinks. And so but we, we have to maintain our profits. So we better buy some, you know, start some water brands. And so, you know, there's all this talk in the like the wellness community about the success of getting people to drink water instead of soda because it's it's the same behavior. You reach into the, the, the refrigerated thing or, you, you know, you go to the shelf and you just pick up a different thing and you feel virtuous for it. Um, so they were very good at getting us to consume the water by making it identical to the previous habit. Right. Uh, it was, I, I mean, it was kind of a masterful, as you as you stated, it's really a masterful marketing job to create a product where no need existed at that time, but to create want and desire without need, which I think is total bunk. I mean, that's like that's like the epitome of having a useless uh, impact on life and humanity. <laughs> To take something where zero need, in fact, kind of a negative need and create desire and want out of it. And unfortunately, that's a lot of kind of commercialism and consumerism that, uh, you know, has kind of uh, evolved over time. But they did a big bottle of water, did a really masterful job of that. And I think for sure, you know, I'm not a um, the, the, the flow water brand as well as kind of from my own personal perspective, I, my, I tend not to. Uh, ever vilify the bottled water drinkers. I think in many ways, I think of the bo bottled water drinkers, I think of me at 33, overweight, just drinking soda and, and eating you know, McDonald's and working out, but I just was ridiculously naive about the impact of an extra thousand calories a day and what I had on my metabolism and my weight and my life. And I think of bottled water drinkers in many ways is the same way. I, mean, I don't want to like call them victims necessarily, but I just think they're kind of innocent bystanders or passive participants into the world's greatest marketing engine that has programmed them to think something that is needed is absolutely not. Now, there's an irony to all of this, though, which is 
despite, uh, I think, us having really great quality tap water decades ago, the, the fact of the matter is it's degraded over the last few decades. And it's, it's also not the municipal water uh, treatment facility uh, plant's fault. I think, by and large, they do a terrific job across the U.S., but they're very limited in what they can do. And there's two issues. One is the source of that water in the municipal treatment. Uh, over 90% of tap water, uh, this is a recent SUNY uh, study done in New York, over 90% of tap and bottled water contain over 300 microparticulates per liter of water. That's today, that's now. So whether you're drinking bottled water or tap water, you're drinking the plastics that are in that. And municipal water does not remove that. The second thing is uh, another example of many is that going into this source water and you know through tributaries and whatnot is glyphosate. And Roundup was a chemical that was never even used 50 years ago. Now it's the number one herbicidal product and agricultural product that's used worldwide. And we're literally drinking glyphosate on tap through an IV, but through the form of tap water that is in trace amounts. You know, and there's a lot of people like me that are saying, hey, I'm, I'm not willing to kind of play experiment over the next 20, 30 years to see what trace amounts of glyphosate will do on my endocrine and physiological system. Right. So and, there's and there's a lot of people that I know who are very anti-GMO and glyphosate is the, you know, the most significant um, component of uh, the thing that GMOs are uh, are there to to allow into our bodies. And yet they still think that, oh, well, drink, but drinking, you know, bottled water is like it's part of my health regimen. They don't realize they're getting the same glyphosate from the water as they're getting right. from their, you know, their, their corn tacos at Taco Bell. Right. Exactly. I mean, that is that I, and I think the two big store uh, headlines over the next five to 10 years in the world of water and health and hydration are going to be glyphosate and microplastics that are in our tap water. And then there's some other issues with our uh, kind of conventional tap water delivery distribution system here in the United States. One of those is that municipalities need to chlorinate the water to safely deliver it. Uh, but chlorine is a, uh, you know, it ends up being a toxin and cancerous in high enough doses. We don't quite know exactly what happens in super low doses over a period of time. But what we certainly know is that it's not beneficial for intestinal flora, which we also know is incredibly important for immune uh, uh, anti-inflammatory, et cetera. And so, you know, there's some things that end up happening in tap water, both through the chlorination of it, as well as the fact that, you know, this whole infrastructure in the United States as well, worldwide, is very much built upon uh, lead-painted pipes. And that is just an issue that, you know, we're getting to the point where we now need to treat our tap water twice. So the irony is that bottled water became uh, pro pretty prolific at a time when tap water actually was quite good decades ago. And now, however, we are in a position where bottled water is clearly seen as the new environmental cigarette. There's a mega trend away from it, but we're juxtaposed because going back to the tap, there are other issues there that we didn't have to deal with 30 years ago, like glyphosates, like microplastics, like chromium six and some other things as well. Right. And we, you know, we're on well water here. We're out in the country in North Carolina. There was just a, an expose uh, done by some researchers at Duke University that are, you know, Duke Energy um, has been dumping some stuff. And it turns out that we have we have high levels of dioxane, which I had never heard of. It sounds enough like dioxin to keep me up at night. Um, but, you know, so like there's it, and I have no idea how much, you know, what kind of you know, runoff there is from all my neighbor's cows 
getting getting down into our into our water supply. Uh, but it feels like water has become a another another social justice issue that you know from the extremes of, of Flint, Michigan, to like okay, everyone I know is getting subpar tap water, and the the people with the means can spend three hundred dollars on a home filter and a hundred dollars a year on on replacements, and everybody else, you know, good luck. Uh, I well, I would agree with that. I it was not that long ago that uh, and it was earlier this year that I gave a TEDx talk uh, and a bit of it was on the state of water. And there was this kind of juxtaposition, some of which I've already narrated and, and, and referenced as it relates to, you know, the problem with single use plastics and single use packaging. I mean, forget just even the single use packaging. It's all the CO2s to transport all that packaging around the world. I mean, it's, it, you know, when we start to break it down, it becomes insane. And then also the state of the world of water. And I, while I do run a for-profit commercial business, uh, and we do have a very specific objective around providing flow water units wherever consumers work, rest, and play, there are also a variety of things that we can do uh, from a societal perspective, from a municipal, uh, from a legislative perspective, uh, and consumer behavior perspective that will help move the 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 ball towards more clean water for more people freely available and that really is the goal and so you know we think we have a uh, way and a method and an, a intervention that will help radically improve consumers experience and taste and brand preference with water that being said i'll give you an example of one thing that i think we should do so when you look at this utilization of cigarettes over the last 30 years, 30, 40 years, it's gone from a high of 46% down to like 15, 16% just in the United States. It's been dramatic considering how addictive of a substance uh, nicotine and those other various chemicals are. That was partly driven by, you know, the health and the awareness of outcomes. That was partly and, and not insignificantly driven by social pressure and social norms. I mean, it used to be very cool to sit, I, in fact, I opened up the TEDx uh, with smoking a cigarette on stage and everyone was like losing their minds that someone just lit up a cigarette inside in a theater, but that was normal 35, 40 years ago. Like that was not abnormal, maybe 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. And now it's, you know, people are losing their minds, like ready to call 911 and like pull fire alarms. So there's been some social changes. However, I think one of the other things that has radically shifted around uh, tobacco and is a parallel with bottled water is this level of um, uh, taxation really effectively is what it comes down to is if you look at tobacco 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 is taxed exorbitantly high I mean it's in the 40 50 60 percent depends on the state but if you were to take an average across the United States it's around 50 percent taxation and the increase in the, there's a high degree of price elasticity with tobacco products and the higher the price is, the, the lower the uh, usage of it is. And I think one of the things that we should do is I'm all for free market, I'm all for free enterprise, but American citizens and citizens worldwide are ultimately being the detrimental inheritors of all of this garbage. If we taxed big bottled water in the same way that we tax cigarettes, we could A, use those proceeds to start to clean up some of that mess and remove the, the, the impurities, but then B, to upgrade municipal uh, water sources so that they do provide cleaner, better tasting, uh, you know, more filtered water to consumers 
that are freely available. And I, so I'm, you know, as much as I am a for-profit commercial CEO of an entity that we think we're doing something transformational, I also have a set of philosophies and beliefs that apply to whether they're drinking flow water or not, but it really is an application towards humankind perspective and in motive rather than uh, anything that's commercially oriented. Mm. Yeah, and I, lo I love the idea of taxation. I was just actually doing some research on this, um, on like I think the cigarette tax in New York or New York City is a pack is, is like thirteen dollars, and down here in North Carolina it's around five or six dollars, and the smoking rate in North Carolina is double that in, that in New York, and there's right. there's there's clear core like. You know, I'd like to see the legislator with the cojones to uh, to propose that. You know, I don't I don't exactly know the 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 political clout of big water, except that big water is also big food. Right. Right. So exactly right. I mean, that is that is the battle. I think what's so interesting to me about this dynamic, so much different than tobacco. It's one of the biggest distinctions is that if you look at big bottled water, everybody um, now in the industry and outside the industry, I mean, you could just look at your Facebook newsfeed in this afternoon, you're going to see two or three articles or at least one or two articles probably on plastics in the environment. And the chances are probably 50, 50, that it'll be on bottled water, single use plastics and single use packaging contaminants. So now it's, it's, it's superfluous and it's everywhere. But I think the, the reality right now is that Legislation can be powerful and it can be a powerful catalyst for change. Taxation on products uh, that are uh, extremely detrimental, that have far reaching consequences and cost to society can be beneficial. I think this market's going to move faster than all that. And that's the ultimate irony is that there is such vilification, or uh, either it's vilification or there's such a movement towards a better healthier, more productive, environmentally conscious way of doing things that I actually think this social movement and also, you know, just with what happens with digital and 2.0 and social media and, and the confluence of everyone's eyes on all things at all times anymore, I actually think that movement is going to drive us towards a plastic free, a packaging free world faster than any legislation or taxation or uh, a kind of in uh, regulatory, uh, regulatory change. And that's an exciting thing, I think, from a societal perspective, when we can use um, kind of the force of human behavior to make the shift faster than waiting on regulation in Congress to uh, adopt. Right. Although, I mean, with, with tobacco, well, I think one of the big forces was the, you know, the, the legislation that allowed discrimination for for lack of a better word against smokers they had to huddle in the you know in the freezing alleyways outside of work where it became stigmatized largely because of secondhand smoke we have the same thing with secondhand plastic but it's not as direct and in your face right no well i you know it's interesting i never actually thought about um legislation that might relegate all the bottled water drinkers to drink in one side of the their airport or something like that. That would actually be that would actually be quite a funny little YouTube spoof uh, to do in, instead of commercials. But I, to your point, I mean, this is the problem. This is what, if you're not a bottled water drinker, you're drinking bottled water. 
to the point earlier about you're drinking the plastics that are in the water and now we're all consumers of it, which actually might cause it to catalyze faster, which is if we're now all the recipients of a subsection's bad decision making around using bottled water or not recycling it appropriately, and now we're all the, the consumers of that. You know, I think it might cause the market to shift all the more quickly towards saying, hey, there's a better way, let's do something better together. And I think consumers are gonna rally around that. We're already starting to see that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a huge migration and a huge shift that we're underway, a mega trend away from single-use packaging. And it's not just getting away from something, but I believe it's moving towards something that's better. And this is why I'm such a fan of talking about hydration as well. 70% of Americans, up, up to 80% of people worldwide are chronically dehydrated. I mean, if doctors could write a prescription and CPT code for dehydration and prescribing water, it'd be the world's first trillion dollar drug. But, like, <laughs> you know, doctors and, I, you know, I'm not anti-doctor. I go see a doctor. I see both kind of a naturopath as well as a medical doctor. So I, I'm a fan of having a foot in both camps of that. But my point is that people are going to behave in ways that they are either trained, programmed or economically incentivized to behave unless they see and identify something that's better. And so that's a result of medicine, which goes often to prescribing. Whereas I and I'm, I, I know you as well, is if we can wire people around the positive, high impact, high performing outcomes of slightly changed behaviors that have uh, multifactorial benefits, such as eating cleaner and exercising a little bit more and getting properly hydrated, like those are all the precursors to everything else downstream. And over time it has orders of magnitude impact. And so that's why I get excited about uh, talking about water and hydration is because, you know, 70% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. And I want to be a, if not big part, at least a small part, along with 60 other employees at Flow Water that are teammates of mine uh, in helping solve that. Right. And you, know, you started out by saying that your mission is the decentralization and democratization of water. Like, you know, for me, that that um, that resonates very much because what I want for is to the, the decentralization and democratization of health to help people realize what's in their hands. Right. Because as long as health comes from a, a scripts pad, then I can't get it unless I can go see a doctor. And I need, you know, then we're talking about the insurance and all this other stuff and accessibility and which doctor. Whereas if I am the locus of control for most of my own health, uh, and that's where the challenge is, because, you know, there's food deserts where you can't find a decent uh, produce section and there are water deserts. <laughs> like it's uh, the way you're describing it. It makes it sound like the whole country is a great big water desert in terms of truly potable w water that feeds ourselves and doesn't damage them. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a great way of articulating it. And I think there are a lot of uh, parallels to that and we're starting to see an evolution around consumer behavior and food choice food selection food awareness and uh sometimes i think it is as simple as first identifying that you have a problem right i mean just if you don't know it's like this incrementalism piece which is you know for me when i was getting five pounds a year well i didn't notice it after one year i did notice it after five years and then seven years but you know, as you're going through it, you don't notice it. And then identification of the problem and then being able to have an honest discussion with oneself and then kind of reconciling that with what do I want or what do we as humanity and society 
want to achieve and what do we want to leave as a legacy for you know descendants and generations to come um, I think part of that is simply around education and awareness and I think we're seeing this incredibly powerful movement right now uh, where people are are educating and becoming aware of food choices and also beverage and water choices at a rate that's far different today than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, but there's still a lot of opportunity ahead of us. There's a ways to go. Right. And I think, you know, for the first time, it feels like consumer awareness might be outstripping the greenwashing that has tried to accommodate it and uh, co-opt it in the past. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I love that perspective. I hope that's true. Uh, um, I, you know, because I sit in the uh, face of the packaged water industry, I tend to still feel like there's quite a bit of greenwashing that's going on. So if you look at big, like I'll give you an example, I'm not going to name the company, but a big bottled water company announced on Earth Day that they were uh, either moving to aluminum or they were moving to a, they were launching a new piece of hardware. I can't remember what it was, but the move to aluminum was going to be at some point in the future and many years down the road. And then uh, if it was the hardware story and they did kind of both these announcements right around the same time, and the move to hardware was kind of a beverage dispensing piece of hardware that is, I know from some inside sources, nowhere close to being able to commercialize. There weren't many pilot locations, but they announced it on Earth Day because they want to get all the credit for it. And it's a form of greenwashing to me. And I think this is one of I, if I were to look at big bottled water and big beverage and the biggest coup that they would love to deploy right now that we are you know, aggressively fighting against for the benefit of society and our environment as well as human health is they would love nothing more than to switch somebody out. They might say, OK, we cannot slow the single use plastic uh, mega trend down anymore. Let's now just flip everybody to single use aluminum. And that would be a huge travesty because on a kind of per carbon output basis, single use aluminum is even worse than single use plastic. It just has kind of different varying degrees. We're going to launch an aluminum multi-use product where we believe consumers are going to reuse it 10, 20, 30, 40 times. Um, so I'm a fan of aluminum multi-use, but that's not Big Bottle Water's strategy and that's not Big Bottle Water's revenue generator. Their revenue generator, just much like the pharmaceutical industry and the tobacco industry, which is to commercialize those products and sell and get people to repeat usage, it's to get a single use used one time and then get a consumer to buy another one. And so I, I think, you know, I think of that as greenwashing as well. So I, I love your going back to it. I love your optimism. I hope you're right that the consumer sentiment, sensibilities and the movement, I think it is really powerful. I mean, I think we're now seeing for the very first time consumer uh uh, consumers embracing their power of driving decisions individually and collectively faster than organizations being able to cleverly maneuver and kind of out, out, outsmart the consumer. I do think we're at that point, um, though I, I feel like a lot of companies are still working really hard at greenwashing, too. So I don't mean to sound skeptical on that point, but I'm mixed on it. Well, I am, too. I just thought it was a <laughs> I thought I would say something positive once in a while. No, it's, it's very aspirational. And I, I, hope I think I think there is truth, though, to um, I mean, as, as much as the social media companies have been playing us, um, there is there, you know, there's little bits of democracy that, that sneak in. <laughs> And one of them is be like the 
the call out culture when appropriate of companies that are BSing that, you right. know, that, that appear to be like, you know, for me, like the greenwashing and bottled water is literal that I've noticed that the packaging has turned from blue to green and they have right. the little recycling stickers bigger. And it says now 15 percent less plastic. This, you know, this lid or this plastic is now thinner. It's like, oh, now, you know, now I'm a good person. That's like moving. So the joke that I always make is. Look, I think that's uh, my, I, and I try not to vilify, I never vilify the, I don't mind vilifying the product, bottled water. I, I, I tend to think of the employees that are pushing those products are also kind of in this ecosystem that if they could just see a better way, I, you know, I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry and the reality is when you work in the pharmaceutical industry, you can be a really good person with really great aspirations, but at the end of the day, if you're working on a brand like Prozac, you are paid and you are incentivized on how much Prozac goes out the door. It's not like the right usage and the right use case, and the right indication. It, and, and so it becomes uh, kind of a mushkambul of like, well, what is the right thing to do and how do I do this appropriately? How do I make sure we're like doing things like keeping our job and growing the business and what have you? And I tend to think of people that are talking big bottled water uh, individually are probably really good people that are really misguided. And if there's a better way, um, to show, to drive them, uh, and that's part of our responsibility as well, is, is, is to be a facilitator uh, of that. Right. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, it is, it is a, a, if we're, it's easy to vilify individuals and that doesn't change anything, right? Like when, when especially, you know, the issue is the system. Like for me, like I don't, I don't, I don't know you, so I don't know if you want to go here with me. But like one of the things I think is the problem is that water is no longer seen as sacred. And for, for me, you know, from a lot of spiritual traditions, at least, you know, certainly non-Western ones, indigenous ones, water is the blood of Mother Earth. We are her children. And the fact that you could, you know, that a, that a company like Nestle could lay claim to public water, dry it up, bottle it, sell it back to us, you know, it, it feels very spiritually wrong. And it's a, it's a system issue. It's not an individual issue. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I do describe uh, when I talk about water is that in the United States, we have driven to a complete commoditization of water to the point where there is almost no perceived value to it unless you happen to package it up in a bottle and sell it for three dollars. Then suddenly, then suddenly we say, oh, there's value to water. When we put it in a pretty package and it comes from an exotic country and we ship it all the way here and then we ship it all over the US, then it's worth $3 for you know one liter. And so what we have seen is a complete commoditization of something that is literally the most precious, well, one of, if not debatably, the most precious and uh, important resource that uh, should also be, you know, uh, in my belief, a fundamental right. I mean, a fundamental, a fundamental right of humanity. And you know, our job is again commercially to work on uh, taking the rights that are available to uh, citizens today and improving that experience and to making tap water better. But philosophically, I, I think we would probably see a lot of alignment together on what is a fundamental right and water is spiritual and it is soulful and it is 
Uh, I mean, it's how, you know, if you look at the formation of civilization, it was built around water in many cases, right? I mean, so it, there's so many intricate layers to it. And so I would fully agree that there's been this commoditization of water that's not come in a single package, you know, a single use package, but through uh, distribution. And I, when I talk about this, one of our goals is to decommoditize water so that people see a real value. And here's the irony, Howard, is that if you go into Whole Foods, um, and I love Whole Foods, but if you go into Whole Foods, or I get, you pick any grocery anymore, actually any chain, but I'll just pick Whole Foods as an example. I mean, we're practically in a yogurt bubble. There's like 80 different brands of yogurt, and like, you know, there's sheep's milk and there's goat milk and there's $5 yogurt. Like, so when I was growing up, there were like two brands of yogurt. Like there was one for 39 cents and like 90 cents. Right, like, it was really- Colum- Columbo and Dannon. Right, exactly, right? And so now, like, there, I, I mean, I'm like, I'm like in a yogurt decision matrix for five minutes when I go to Whole Foods in the dairy aisle because there's so many choices and I'm reading the label. But my point around that is in some categories that were so commoditized, like dairy, yogurt, butter, milk, you know, plant-based milks now, right? Like, so now you take it to all these plant-based milks. There's been a total reset around the value of quality and ingredients and source and delivery. Uh, and I feel like our need and our opportunity and frankly, our responsibility is to do that with water and how water is delivered, distributed, consumed and enjoyed ultimately by every man, woman and child is the vision of the company. But that is a more important uh, kind of uh, societal vision than anything else as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I love that, you know, that, that there is. There is this better way and it's it's more elegant. So this is, you know, this is where like the entrepreneurship bit comes in uh, that what we really have to do is remove things from the from water as opposed to add things or, or remove things from the process or from the from the um, the system that delivers water that, you know, like for you to get healthy, largely involved taking things out of your life. Right. Right. And the same thing is true of, of how we're going to fix water. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a uh, I like how you've super simplified it into that, which is in, in like for me, I guess going back to setting behavioral change. Look, some people sometimes can't do five, six, seven things, you know, or they can't take five things out and add five things and have this like some people are wired, obviously, to do that in other cases taking two things out is a great example of, well, just do this. It's like, it's how I got into intermittent fasting. I'll use another example of that is I didn't start going and I don't know how you feel about intermittent fasting. So you might not want to talk much about this, but no, it's fine. It's fine. I, I didn't go to like one meal a day overnight. And sometimes I do one OMAD one meal a day, but you know, I started by, you know, stopping eating at eight and then I would do like a, de- a definitive 12 hours and then I'd go to like 14, then I'd go to 16. And now I typically run like an 18, six or 24 fast five days a week. But some, like to your point though, sometimes it is just stopping with a cessation of a few things that can have such a positive impact. And then what you find out is you have space in your life for those other things. And when you fill it with those other things that are better, it kind of creates a natural virtuous cycle where you're like, oh, I actually feel better because that's gone. And I feel even better, better because I added it with something good. Um, and mm-hmm. that's how positive 
behaviors in many ways can get reinforced and reduplicated, but it's hard to make that initial change, I think. I think that the hardest part is the first step. It's like, you're gonna run a marathon and you start training. I think the hardest mile in a marathon is the first day you decide to start training for it. That's the <laughs> hardest, like it's mile two or mile three in your training program. It really is having run like half a dozen different marathons. I'm not some prolific marathoner, but because that's the psychological one, like it might not have been as physically hard, and, uh, but that psychologically was the hardest one to get into that set the stage for all the other miles. Right. And and I think that's why, you know, the plant based movement had this genius idea of meatless Mondays. It was a way for people to practice something and to and to more importantly, practice living into an identity that once you say, OK, this means I'm healthier. This means that I care about the environment. Right. So like the other thing we've seen in terms of water over the last, I would say, five years, there's the technology of water bottles, just what I can buy in the store. Like, you know, I remember when all you could get was the army canteen. Right. And and, I, and everything tasted like shit from the army canteen. No. And, and now they've got, you know, the the, the, the hydro flasks and the thermal right. flask and the glass stuff that that almost have it, having these things. And because they're so public that it, it has a buzz element to it that you can say, I, I want I want, this means I'm a healthy person. You just look at yourself, look at your behavior, look at your purchasing, and that can then open up the identity to to lots of other positive changes. Yeah, I think that that's a great that's a great call out. And, you know, ironically, in many ways, I think the refillable has become, you know, if you remember the, the fountain pen and what it represented in the 80s hmm. of like status or uh, or pens in general, you know, uh, it's like the new fountain pen almost, which is it's a status symbol. It's personal. It says something about you. It's like incorporated into your everyday. Uh, and I think that has, you know, the proliferation of some amazing brands that are out there. Swell, Mizu, Hydroflask, Clean Canteen, many others uh, has driven a level of I mean, this is part of actually the magic of the ship that we're under, which is it's not only that it tastes better and it's a better experience, uh, they, they fit a little bit better depending on like whether you're throwing it in a bag or in a car, what have you, but they're also cool. Like suddenly carrying a refillable around has become cool and you can make them cooler through unique designs or stickers or what have you. And so that's, I think, all part of the shift. So like part of that shift is for us is like, all right, great, like get them going with refillable, but now you know, from a flow water perspective, is we want to make sure what you're putting in that refillable, you also equally love and it's free of contaminants and is hydrating you well so that you prefer it to what's in a bottle or what's coming out of the tap. Uh, but I think your point about the refillables is a magical one, which is that has perpetuated this whole mega shift that is not going away now. I mean, this is now a mega trend that's uh, immutably happening and we're in the middle of right now. All right. So before I let you go, I want to know a little bit about flow water. Like what 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 what, is, what comes out of that and how does it get there? Like, what's the difference between that and just coming out of the tap? Uh, well, so so going back to flow water and on your on your uh, podcast notes or the blog, there's probably going to be a series of links to an Instagram or a picture of the flow water refill station. But it's a six foot tall refill station that plugs into any potable water line, you know, it runs hundreds of feet, 
we primarily put these flow water refill stations into hotels, schools, corporations, gyms, and retailers. Uh, we are also working on a variety of other products that would go into the home and household, consumer household by the end of next year, we expect. Uh, but the idea ultimately is that you can have flow water wherever you work, rest, and play. Uh, what flow water does is after it takes a water line uh, that gets connected into a flow water refill station, there's seven stages of purification and filtration that that tap water goes through. I'm not going to go through each one of the specific filters. Effectively, those seven filters do one of three things with tap water. One is it removes up to 99%, 99.9% of the contaminants that are in tap water. Glyphosate, pharmaceuticals, herbicides, pesticides, heavy metals, chlorine, fluoride. So the first whole set of filters are just extracting things that are in your tap water that you don't want to be in there. The second stage are re-enhancing that water with electrolytes like calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, trace minerals, increasing the pH by up to 1.5. And then so, that- So in other words, this is, this is like what it would be if it's like trickled down the rocks. Exactly. Like, like from, exactly. from before civilization, you just went to the stream and got your water. That's exactly what it is, which is, I mean, if everyone had those in the backyard, it kind of uh, before all the soil contamination, agricultural uh, byproducts, that is the best source. Like that is Nirvana for water consumption. So if you and I had one of those in our backyard, that's what all of us did. That's what we would all be advocating all day long. So it's the recreation of that is, you know, Earth had kind of this most natural, pure filtering mechanism before it became contaminated and pollutant over, particularly over the last hundred years. But then uh, second is that it was naturally enhanced with electrolytes and minerals that were healthy and vitalizing and not only tasted good, but also were good for the uh, absorption and the proper hydration experience. And then this third stage of uh, filters and purification that we use in a flow water refill station is with a coconut carbon filter. So we take these uh, coconut, there's a, a market in a specific region in Asia that has this rich volcanic soil. And so we'll take, uh, uh, we buy from a source that takes these coconuts that carbonates the husks, that turns it in, into granulated carbon, that is uh, then the final finishing filter where flow water is running through and it gives it this taste that consumers love that's fresh and crisp and clean. And those three things together are what create a flow water experience where consumers end up uh, drinking less soda, less coffee, uh, two to five fold increase in hydration. And also we see a significant reduction up to 80% or more of single use packaging when we have a flow water installed. So that's what flow water is, that's how it works. Um, and we put these all throughout the United States. We're in the process of expanding internationally right now, but uh, you can find flow water in 50 different states or almost 50 states um, in each of those verticals, uh, as I mentioned before. Gotcha. And and what what segments have been the most uh, open to putting to putting them in? I'd never seen one before the before the gym, but I don't go to a lot of public places. You know, I have, I have a podcast. I you know I live at home. <laughs> so like where where was there where was it the easiest to make an, an argument that that led to sales? Uh, I would say. If we look at the market over the last six months, I'll talk about the last six months. One, hospitality, hotels. There is a, and, and a lot of this, by the way, this is driven by consumers. So consumers are coming into hotels saying, I don't want, I don't want bottled water. I don't, I don't want to pay for that. I don't want to see it. 
I don't agree with it. It's wasteful. It literally has become the new environmental cigarette. So we're seeing hotels rapidly make a shift based upon consumer advocacy and adoption and behavior change to say they want something better uh, and they want to be able to fill up a refillable. And part of that also is in hotels, they're seeing a ton of consumers, 30, 40% of consumers or more are walking around with refillable and they need to have a place to be able to hydrate. And you know, we're also with this dichotomy that 70, 75% of Americans don't like or don't trust tap water. So hotels is a big one. Gyms is another one. Uh, that's, a, that's a second one. And then we're seeing a, a those would be the two primary hotels and gyms and that's partly because they have consumers with a voice a strong voice around what they like or prefer or will do and they are voting with dollars and then third is corporations but you know those are more influencing conversations with consumers uh rather than they're voting with their literal wallet and walking in saying this is what i want and those are the markets where we're going to see the greatest propensity or receptivity to you know behavior change uh so that's the result of where we're seeing the fastest growth hotels and then uh, gyms in particular Gotcha. So I want to um, end by maybe getting some like how to or what to do tips for people who've been listening to this, because obviously, you know, I could I can go and fill up at the gym. Um, I have a, a Berkey filter on my counter and in, in, in the kitchen. Um, you know, I, I I I never wanted to use Brita because I saw people like had their little you know refrigerator Brita filters that they didn't change for like three years and I got real. But like for people who don't, you know, until your home product comes out, you talked about you know advocating when you go to a hotel to to speak up to maybe be a be a voice. What what can people do right now, both to help themselves and to help the world? Uh, I, okay, so one is I think in terms of helping yourself. Uh, I don't know if it helps to kind of take a log and, and, and log what you're consuming and drinking during the course of the day and how much of that is soda versus tea versus, you know, energy drinks versus soda versus water. But uh, I would say the best thing that you can do for yourself today, ultimately, regardless of source, even though I worry uh, significantly about you know, what's in some tap water, what's in some bottled water as it relates to microplastics, it is to drink enough water. 70 to 80% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. This affects everything, your mood, your skin, your skin elasticity, your energy levels, your satiety, what you eat, how you eat, hunger, um, digestion, uh, absorption. It, it's like the uh, gateway to everything else in many ways. So I think the very first thing that, and people say like, yeah, I think about, like you, you hear the message, drink water. Well, it, it's different when you say, hear the message, drink water, you're actually going to feel dramatically better or you're gonna wake up more refreshed or you're gonna naturally eat a little bit healthier or a little bit less or you're gonna have better concentration. And so, you know, and it doesn't just work if you do it for a day, a day is important, but for 30 days, go out and hydrate your thirst in a way where you might not even have the thirst or know that you have it, but use it as a substitute for all these other things that you're drinking. And you're going to notice a dramatic impact on energy, vitality. And it's like little changes built up over time end up being big changes as in life, but also as in hydration. So that would be uh, one big one. I think the second, you know, as it relates to just drinking enough water, the second one is uh, you know, I'd be advocating. I mean, if I, you know, as a consumer, I would be advocating forever. I work, rest, and play to have access 
to filtered and purified drinking water that's package free. And I would be saying it's not enough to have, you know, I talked to somebody the other day and they said we, we saw they, they were in the sustainability world and they said, oh, we solved our big plastic water bottle problem. I was like, oh, what'd you end up doing? And I actually thought they were going to tell me that they installed a bunch of flow water units because I was getting all excited. And, and they said, oh, we're moving to aluminum. It's like, well, no, you're, you're actually that all you're doing is going from Marlboro Reds to Marlboro Lights. Like that's progress, but you're still smoking. So let's get into a decentralized distributed product where water is drinkable at wherever that tap is. Part of that is, you know, work at the municipal level, but then there's stuff that companies can be doing today that will eliminate the need for packaging where none exists. And so that would be my, so my one call out is really around just the simplicity of drinking water and why I think it's so beneficial and how it'll change your, your listeners' lives. And you just, sometimes you just have to do it because you hear people do it, but you don't actually do it. But the second is really around the mission of doing something to help drive the environment that we want and the uh, generations that we want to leave behind for, which is to unpackage our water, which is to drink unpackaged water and let us not create packaging unnecessarily where no need exists. The only thing that exists is a marketer's want for us to think we need that. That's the only, in most cases, and if you're in the middle of a desert, fine a bottle of water. But my point is, let's move towards unpackaged solutions wherever possible uh, and request that wherever you work, rest and play, uh, which is what will drive the decision making of, you know, managers, directors, CEOs, VPs, uh, people that are buyers and marketer and, and, and distributors. All right. Well, those are those are two. They're simple and they're clear. And uh, I think, uh, let's 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 go do them. Let's go make it happen for for ourselves and, and for all other living beings on this planet. Howard, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be on your show and I really enjoyed the dialogue and, and thank you for what you're doing and advocating towards uh, healthier ways that are going to ultimately empower people. And that's what I get excited about. And I know you as well. So thank you. Right on. Yeah. And th thank you for for your perspectives. I really appreciate your your willingness to to decommercialize the conversation and, you know, I like to talk about the, the bigger picture rather than just, you know, your own commercial interest. And I got to say, I do, you know, I'm a user of the product. I'm an end user and uh, it's, it's great stuff. And I, I hope you uh, take on the, the Goliaths and, uh, and, and slay bottled water. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you again. All right. Take care. All right, I'll drink to that. How about that? A healthy world, a clean world with safe drinking water for everyone. So check out the show notes for today at plantyourself.com slash 359. We've got that SUNY study and article information about flow water. Also, um, as TEDx talk, uh, bottled water is the new cigarette. So if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the mission, the cheapest, freest, easiest way to do that is to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you can also share this episode with other people if you think they'd be into it. And of course, you can become a patron of the show. You can throw some money my way to um, help defray the cost. Remember, this podcast is free for everyone and 
funded by those who can afford it. So if you're one of the lucky latter, I would love your help in pushing this mission forward. Got a little bit of garden news. Yesterday, the weather was kind of nice and balmy-ish in the afternoon. And I went out and I took a whole bunch of little potatoes, little red and Yukon gold potato lits that had been sprouting in the house. And I planted them and covered them up with mulch. And, you know, it really wasn't worthy of a social media post. It really was not a big deal. Just uh, make a little divot in the soil, toss a little potato in, cover it up. And when I was done with the whole bed, I went and grabbed a couple of wheelbarrows full of uh, wood chips and covered them up and like not a big deal. Right. And yet in a few months, maybe in the late spring, early summer, when the plants mature and there's full potatoes, then that's going to be like, oh, look, I'm going to take pictures of that. I'm going to show them off. I'm going to get a big uh, photograph of, of all the potatoes in a big basket and people are going to be impressed. But really, it's the little stuff I did to yesterday that's going to make the difference. And uh, it reminds me of, of our of our health habits, right? We love to post the runs, the big things, the uh, the races, the the results on the scale. But it's really the little, very not sexy daily things that we do, the planting, the seeds, the seed potatoes of our future self that are that are so important. Um, in running news, I had a really strong run uh, on Sunday afternoon. The sun was going down. I hadn't done much, and I was thinking of it as a rest day. And instead, I just went out for like, okay, I'm just going to do a three-minute or a three-mile little jog up and down the street, just kind of shake things out. And the, the more I ran, the better I felt. And I ended up doing negative splits all the way, starting at a 930 mile, 929. At the end, I was down into the 840s. And I ended up doing six miles, coming home in the dark, watching out for cars because I didn't bring any uh, lights or reflection with me. But it felt really good. And part of what I'm doing differently is I'm really foam rolling a lot and working out with a personal trainer for a couple of times at the gym to really get my my gait and to turn on the right muscles and to release some fascial knots that have been uh, creeping in and uh, affecting my form. So I'll hopefully be posting a lot more happy runs and uh, letting you know about them over the next uh, weeks and months. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his gorgeous West African Kora music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Got a new name this week, so if you listen all the way to the end, you'll hear it. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jenna Polkinovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Lea Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Run the Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fronsick, Janet Benham, Gila Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doran Avizov, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen. 
Michael Warabeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergen, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Aman, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzel, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shul Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosalind, Diyat, Julie Lang, Homedic, Artie Zutuzanwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olikoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani. Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, Dan, Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Garcia, Emily Iaconelli, Levery Wallach, Moserman McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiBartino, Mike and Donna Cards, DM Bishop, Bill Brie Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trish Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Basher, Gummery, Hagen, Tracy Cullis, Laura Eden, Meg from Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman. Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, and Mark Jeffrey Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, with Anne Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harperson, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman, 
Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cards, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gun Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.